You're listening to The Blaze Radio Network, on demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Hi, everybody. I got a great guest for you. Joel Mail, the vice chairman of the Miami Marlins, is in the studio. And anybody who is a sports fan, you're going to love this show because we're going to talk about business and life and growth and being great through the prism of owning a ball club. And we've got great stuff. We've got what's it like running a big business, what's it like dealing with bad press and haters, Finding talent, that whole prism between natural versus hard work. We've got the work day for people that operate at such a high level. We've got a lot of great stuff. You're going to love the show. Check it out. Delving into current events. To uncover relevant wisdom. Uncover relevant wisdom. This is the Charlie Harari Show. With Charlie Harari. On the Blaze Radio Network. Joel Mail is in the studio with us right now, and an amazing, amazing person in general, and just as a person, he's amazing, but he's had a very interesting, wonderful career, and he'll continue on, but I, I brought him in because of some of the things that he's experienced, and sometimes you haven't been able to meet people like this. Not only is he the founding partner and managing director of Tallwood Associates, which is a merchant bank that is also focused on real estate. Um, he is the vice chairman of the Miami Marlins, and really, do you, you meet a person who is uh, versatile, if you will, in, in, in multiple things? So he's in the studio with, with us right now, and it's an honor to have you, Joel, on the show. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, what's it like? Um, you know, let me just jump right into the Marlins because I know that everyone's going to be thinking, "Oh my gosh, the Marlins!" and and it's it's a baseball team, and you're a vice chairman of it. They want to hear about that before we get to a lot of the business stuff that we're going to talk about. Um, but what's it like? You know, being the vice chairman of a baseball team and being able to see the world both from a sport perspective and the game and from a strategy perspective. So uh, I've been involved with various businesses over the years. What makes the baseball business completely different is that you are under a microscope. There is nothing that you do that is not viewed by the public. So Every single day, there are multiple articles about your company, your business, about things that your personnel do that is different than any other business. Maybe the entertainment businesses and movie studios are similar, but this is very different. And therefore, it's a very heightened sensitivity to what you do on a daily basis. How much of it, I mean, and this is something that I think, you know, from the outsider's perspective, uh, we look at things like Moneyball. We look at things like um, the cybermetrics with sports. And it, it, it's almost turned into like a pop culture where you just think that people are out there cr- crunching numbers. and But then you grow up and you just sort of watch players. And it's very hard for an individual to think and see a sport team as a business. 
if you, in your perspective, if you can, how much of the actual business of running a baseball team is business that you have a subject called baseball? Fine. Just like a subject, you can have a product or you can have a service like any other product and service. How much of what you think that you're doing and seeing is an actual business in which you are crunching numbers, in which you are worrying about ticket sales, in which you're seeing your your baseball players as you know clients or as your employees and have to deal with them? Uh, I would say that uh, the vast majority of what you do with a baseball team is regular business. Um, there are some extenuating factors. Like if you are recognized that if I'm running a ladder company, when I walk into the grocery store, nobody's telling me, hey, um, I think you built your ladder wrong. I fell <laughs> off that ladder. When you walk in and somebody recognizes you or somebody knows what you do for a living, they say, I can't believe you did that last night in the eighth inning. Right. Like I had something to do with the guy striking out, nothing. <laughs> But that is different because people are always telling you what you should be doing more so than in a regular business. You are second guest and third guest and fourth guest every minute of the day. So let's jump into that because that's a principle that I think people feel all the time. It's the ability to be in a place where someone else is always looking over your shoulders. It's not just in baseball. If people are working in a company, if people are on the street and people stop coming into their stores, if people have a product and no one's buying, if people are in the online media business and no one's downloading. We live in a world where things are happening so quickly and so um, immediately that whatever you do, there's somebody commenting on. How do you manage it? How does a baseball team manage to know when it's time to listen and when it's just haters and haters will hate or people without lives will spend too much of their time thinking that they're the owners? How does ownership balance between knowing when to be able to change based on public opinion or someone else's opinion and sticking to the fundamentals of running a business even if it's unpopular? I think, Charlie, you're making a great point here. Um, I see in my 15 years in baseball alone how things have been completely changed. Uh, the information technology that comes out today is extraordinary. Um, even if I, I'll come back to baseball in a minute, but um, one who's running, who, who owns an apartment complex, right now you can go online in any apartment complex in the country and you will find certain tenants that have lodged incredibly horrible complaints about your property. Question is, is this widespread or is it one or two wackos who like to write complaints? Is it only people who are unhappy who write or people that have good experience don't bother writing reviews? So I think that's true of any business. In baseball, where everything is 24-7 and there are, is constant uh, chatter going on, you really need to try and make a decision, understand your decision, be completely rational about the decision you made, and then even if the chatter goes against you, you have to sometimes listen depending on the issue, and other times you have to sort of sit back and say, you know what, I don't think they're right. For example, when we first opened our new stadium, we brought in a new manager, Ozzie Guillen, and a week before the season started, he made a horrific comment about Fidel Castro. The 
of all places to say that was Miami. And we, not being natives of Miami, couldn't understand the anger and the passion of Cubans that were living in Miami about Ozzy Guillen saying that Castro is somebody he respects. It was only after we saw the outrage in the market that we were able to really appreciate how bad a comment that was, and we therefore took immediate disciplinary action. But the comment by itself was not that different than all of the other silly or controversial statements that Ozzy Guillen had made in the past, but this one really crossed the line. I think we appreciated that once we saw the public reaction. So when you're, especially as 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 you're delving into this, it's the, the, the tons of questions are popping into my mind because, like you're saying, you're a baseball team, and so you have passion all around you, passion against, passion for, which is a great thing if you can hone it correctly, right? A lot of people have that. A lot of people have businesses that um, people are passionate about, people care about. Even if it's the local grocery store, right? People care that they go all the time there and they shift the aisles and people get upset. But you have people that are literally thinking and dreaming and sports are one of those few things where people identify themselves with. We're number one. Well, you no, you're really their number one and you're just you know paying for them to be number one. But there's a sense of an identity. So are you using certain metrics? Are you using certain information? Are you at the cusp, so to speak, watching decisions play out? from a, um, an information perspective, or are you relying a lot on gut? Are you taking people that have been in the business for 20 years and going, hey, what do you think of this player? Or what do you think of this play? Or what do you think? How do you do this? How does somebody that is running a business that is so, I don't want to say subject to chance, but it really is. I mean, the truth is, I mean, I'm sure the two of us know that. I'm sure you know more than I do. Like whether he strikes out or he hits a ball, a lot of it has to do with split seconds of seeing the right pitch or whether, you know, the team comes comes around and, and rallies. Come, sometimes could be momentum that they hear from a crowd or just one person outrunning a, a play. So your business in many ways is not based on sort of very specific metrics that you'll hit every time. There's a lot up the chance there's a team every night trying to get you to not achieve your goals so what do you rely on do you rely on experience do you rely on gut do you rely on information that comes out is it a mixture because i'm thinking to myself all of us are sort of in some microcosm in the same way where we're all trying to do something and the world responds to us and what we rely on at the end of the day to feel good or bad about our decisions is incredibly important so what do you guys rely on? I would say it's uh, primarily working with experience, but there is an element of gut that you have to bring in. Whenever you're dealing with a human and who is not a robot, it's not an algorithm, it's not a model that the numbers will always come out exactly the same. There are occasions where you need, where a manager needs to rely on his gut. But for the most part, in the baseball business, you need to go with percentages. You need to go with statistics. You need to go with what works in the past. The difference is, is that we do not have enough to just make a decision based on experience and based on the logical thing. When it comes to a public entity, which, by the way, you make a good point, the public believes that a sports franchise is a public institution. Right. Even if it's privately owned, right. they feel that they are partners in it. And therefore, a very important part of that whole analysis, a very important part of 
every decision is the public relations aspect. You have to have a public relations plan more so than in almost any other business of communicating, of of working with your press corps, of working with all of the people who do communicate to the public of what the message is. And if you don't do that, you will be making decisions and people will just be questioning them all day long. And they have no better information than to think about it. I think about the end of the Patriot game. Um, uh, in fact, you, Charlie, were the one who brought up the article that it was uh, the coach of the Patriots who forced Seattle into that position right. Be- by, by Belichick. By not calling the timeout. By not calling the timeout. So that's another way of looking at it, that the public by themselves would never know that unless somebody expressed that to them. Oh, so that's a great point. What you're making here, just to, to, so my head I understand it, is the following. Every business owner, but in particular someone who runs an organization or institution that is so public-focused, so public focused, has to operate on two different, almost two different planes. The one plane is what is right. And what is right is a, a decision that, that goes with experience and information. And I would even go a step further, which is if many people are making decisions in life and in business without information, it's just gut, right? And like you said a minute ago, if you just rely on gut, you're just going to go round and round in circles because your gut needs to be wrong. It's too important to rely on gut. You need stats. I remember one time I was years ago, I was working for a company that had an interest in a hockey team. I'll never forget. And we had a closing dinner for the, when they closed the interest in this hockey team in the owner's suite. I don't want to say which one because it's embarrassing. No, I'm just kidding. So in the owner's suite, every single period, what the owner and his team got, I was amazed, was literally to the second stats on every player. It, it, to the how many times the, the, the puck touches stick, how many times he skated up and down the ice, how many times, uh, plus and minus. And they were looking literally per the period, for, and they were watching trends, so to speak. Now, that may be too much, but the idea is that you can't rely on gut. You have to rely on information, and information, you've got to make a decision. But what you're, what you're bringing up right now is important, which is your knowledge of information is only one piece of it. There's also the public's knowledge of information, and the public needs to know that you know what you're doing. So when you make a decision, it's not just that, hey, listen, we're in the booth making this call, and it's right. I know it's going to be bad in a couple of minutes, and I know it's going to look bad for a couple of weeks, but trust us. You've got to actually go out and tell the people, guys, we can tell you this much because we need to not only let you know things are happening, we need to, to let you know that someone's at the wheel, and you have to trust us. And the idea and the ability to express to your consumers that there's some thought going into decisions, or I would go even further if you would agree with me, we made mistakes. And we realized that we made a mistake is half the battle to, to, to running a company that people actually care about. I think that's true. I think that's very true. And um, that is probably the hardest thing that I've seen any managers, and that's and that is to admit uh, making a mistake. Yeah. It's the hardest thing to do. Or or to explain why you did what you did. I'm telling you, I think people would go crazy. I'm, I'm Again, maybe I don't know enough of what's happening on the field today. But for the sports teams to be able to, as opposed to all the commentators speculating, for someone to say, we made these five calls because of this, this, and this, I think it would change the dynamics of how people saw sports teams. If Belichick and if Carroll came out and said, as opposed to everyone speculating, 
hey, listen, maybe they did this. I don't know. Hey, these are the reasons why we made these calls. This is what we were thinking behind. I think people would say, hey, hey wait a second. I hear it. I hear it. I, listen, I, it didn't work out for you. But as opposed to if I were the manager or what an idiot or what a dumb move, as opposed to all this rhetoric that goes on to trying to second guess a team, a lot of it comes because the actual manager, the decision maker never took the time to explain these are some of the parameters of my decision. And this, this stuff isn't classified. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like as much as we all die for our sport, this is sports. This isn't like, you know, Navy military moves off the coast of like, you know, Iran. The, one of the problems, though, is that um, coaches and managers in professional sports franchises, even in um, college uh, teams today, are paid so much money that there are very few of these managers who want to make self-deprecating comments. They don't want to admit mistakes because the trade-off is they're trying to convey confidence to the public that you should have confidence in me. I know what I'm going to do because the second the public completely loses confidence in a coach, in a manager, you are now forcing ownership to think that the only way I will get the public to buy in is if I make a move. So if you overplay that hand, right, then you've lost confidence and then you've probably talked yourself out of a job. Right. So, so the, like any, any level of leadership, you know, this happens politically. Um, when you have someone making big political moves and it looks from the outsider like it's just a crazy move, the ability to admit these are the decisions that we're making and why I think plays that, that, that same game, which is you go too far and say, I just don't know. And people go, what? But if you don't go far enough, what happens is people say, what are you thinking? And if you just sort of let people know what you're thinking, people would say, wow, you actually thought this one through and you made a call. And I think that's a big thing in terms of all levels of business. I see that from a lot of sort of startup companies is that they, they grow a fan base, they have a product, they have a service, and then life happens. Right, you, 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 there's a snag, or you make a move, or you know there's a bad day, or someone hacks into the system, whatever it is. And to the extent you can come out and show that you've done everything that you can from an insider's perspective to prevent this, and you're making the right moves, but the world's against you. What are you going to do? You know, what I'm saying, like, especially in sports, like, there's another team making moves, and their only job is to stop you from your goal. No one's aligned with you. That's the beauty of sports. It's it's a, you know it's asymmetrical, and the ability to articulate why you do what you do, I think, and I see this in the business world, the transparency gives the consumer another level of trust from the trust. And tell me what you think of this: from the level of they know what they're doing to the level of they have my best interest in mind. There's a transition point where they go. They may not know everything that they're doing. But they're on my team. They want this to work. They're not trying to, you know, jack up the prices. They're not trying to just continue to, you know, sort of put put up their own ego. They don't live in their own little bubble. They they're they're part of me. And when you feel like you're someone's part of you, you you give them more slack than you would if you felt like they were against you. I think that as long as you have a long term perspective, you can make that work. Um, looking at what we did over the last three years with our team, three years ago we moved into a brand new stadium and the principal owner decided we're moving into a new stadium. We're going to sign a bunch of free agents, Jose Reyes, Mark Burley. We had Josh Johnson. We had a few other players. 
and it didn't work. And what I find a lot of managers do who are not successful is whether it's because of ego, whether it's for whatever reason, they stick with that decision because they're refusing to admit they were wrong. We realize that we put together the wrong group very quickly. And before the end of the year, we had moved probably seven or eight players off the team. We were absolutely fried in the public, uh, killed. Today, three years later, we've rebuilt. We've brought in some better pieces, we hope. And all of a sudden, the press and the public are saying, you know what? Maybe it's time for a second chance. So you may take, if you have the luxury of time, to take a longer-term perspective. But now I think, and if we start to win this year, winning cures a lot of ills. But if we start to win, I think you'll see people come back and say, you know what? It wasn't a bad plan. They really do know what they were doing. Right, 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 right. Let me ask you this, though. So how do you personally or how do you professionally deal with bad press? I know a lot of people, they, I, I know a lot of people that when they get a bad review, when they get um, someone telling them that they're doing bad, th- you know, as soon as someone in the world says you're not good, people start to shut down. How do you deal with seeing in the newspaper and it's and it's the news it's not a couple of reviews on yelp it's not uh some murmuring in the back of a local store right you you open up the paper and people are questioning your ability people are questioning your judgment people are questioning what you do for a living how do you deal with it um it's funny when i was on wall street uh back in the 80s um our firm came under incredible scrutiny and the government was after us and Uh, We were on the front page of the paper every day. Uh, A a year later, or two years later, uh, I remember that uh, it was a different firm. Solomon Brothers was on the front page every day. A couple of years after that, uh, one of the big banks was on the front page every day. And I remember this lesson well. When my firm was on the front page every day, the first thing I did every morning was grab all three newspapers. People actually read newspapers in those days and read the articles about ourselves. And I said, oh, how horrible, how horrible, how horrible. Started off the day depressed. When these other firms, and I had friends at these other firms, were their firms were in the paper, the front day. I just sort of read the headline and moved on. I didn't even know what was going on in their firms, but they were depressed. So what I figured out very quickly was when it's about you, you really take it personally, but 99% of the public isn't reading it, doesn't care, isn't following the story. So forget about it. You know, take a look and move on. You can't let it control your life. So it was a good lesson for me that when we got in the baseball business, okay, Oh, that's that writer. Oh, he he always writes something negative. That's this guy. Nah, forget about it. You have to develop a thick skin, and I think it's from the experience of knowing that nobody else is as focused on your issues in the press like you are. Mm-hmm. So the development of a thick skin in your mind is the recognition that most people aren't aren't as concerned with your life as you are. Correct. And as soon as somebody. I remember one time I got a – when I was in the law firm, my, my law firm life, 
I remember one time I got like a, you know at the end of every six months I was doing rotations and I got got a bad review. There was one associate that I got into a little bit of a tiff with, and he was older than me, and so he had to review me and he gave me a really negative review. And I remember going in to get my review and that was red, and I was broken, like broken. Um, and I was walking around and the partner saw me and he pulls me and goes, "What's wrong with you?" I said, "What do you mean? They all hate me in the group." He goes, who hates you? Everyone likes you. I said, did you see what that – he goes, one person says something not nice about you. You think that everybody does? It's that you're so concerned over not being accepted that you assume that one person's thought is the feelings of everybody. Most people don't even care about you. They're worried about their own careers. And the, the, the what we all tend to do is sort of take that one little bit of negativity and sort of expand it out and Magnified. assume – that if one person thinks it, we all think it. And what do you do with haters? And then I want to move on to the next thing. But I, this is something that I ask people a lot because anyone in the public eye has haters. Haters, there's two types of negativity I find. There's negativity in which people say things inappropriately, but they're right. They're right. That they, they, you really shouldn't be or should be doing. And they just call you, they call you out on it and they just do it in a way that's just not you know, sensitive. Then there's just haters. They're just haters. They're just, they've got their own issues They've got their own problems, and there's no one to punch except for someone who's out, out who's out in the public. And so what do you guys do when you're dealing with haters, those, those nagging negativity that just sort of always seems to be you know, grabbing at your ankles and bringing negativity in? So there are different, there are different situations, um, but th- there is a um... – there is a feeling on our part um, and we've done it sort of on a regular basis. Um, Your number one inclination is when there is somebody out there who is after your throat and is making terrible comments, is writing horrible letters to you about, uh, I don't like this policy and uh, blah, 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 is you sort of just ignore it and you move on. Um, we've taken a little bit of a different approach, and in many situations, we actually call these people. We call them out and have a very calm, rational conversation with them. You call them in, you mean? No, we call them on the phone. Oh, you call them. We call them, and we have a conversation with them and say, and it could be anybody. It could be somebody who's a season ticket holder who you know, was upset that you traded this player and I want to cancel my tickets. And... Over 90% of the time when you talk to them, you're able to turn them around. Let me explain to you why I did it. I'm sorry you're upset. Here's our plan. This is what we're trying to do. I think most people are rational if you can talk to them. And it wasn't only about season ticket holders, politicians, uh, anybody that we had to deal with uh, in business. I think it's always a great, uh, a great idea to try and neutralize them. You may not win them over, but you could probably neutralize them and because then they say you know what this guy really cares about me he called me he's worried about what i'm concerned with and that's really been a big plus right and i think that's a great lesson for everybody which is usually the people that are so to speak out to get you are people that just need to be heard by you especially if you're in a place of leadership or up in in the spotlight somewhere usually what, what what you're getting is Maybe jealousy or maybe feelings of not being heard or feelings of being out of control. And when people feel this way, that's how they react. And like you're saying, like we said earlier in the show, which is 
just the ability to recognize that you have to explain yourself to somebody shows them that, hey, you're a person, I'm a person, let's be rational. Let's jump into another area that I think people think a lot about as you're building a business, but you see it from a very different angle. Talent, right? Your business is talent. That's what you do for a living. You find, you hone, you develop, and support talent. Because like we said earlier, you can't send it to China and make sure the product comes out a certain way, right? You have to put it on a field and let you know your nine guys fight someone else's nine guys, and it's talent that really brings it out in the end. Now, and baseball, I think from every sport, is a sport where you guys are probably looking for talent since the kids are little. I'm sure you have scouts looking at kids that are you know in in uh, you know eighth grade or little league, and you know looking around and going, "Whoa, this kid's got a good arm," or "This kid can really run the base as well." What is your perspective of? natural talent versus hard work. How do you guys look at talent? How do you develop talent? And what's your personal thought being in this position that you're in, in the business of talent, as to what you're looking for with regards to some kid that's just so naturally talented because he's athletic or he's got all the right DNA or some kid that would just work every day and every second? What's the balance between those two? I think it goes beyond uh, just physical talents. I think it's uh, talents in the workplace as well. Um, There was one pitcher we had who uh, did okay, but the word on him always was he had a million-dollar arm with a one-cent brain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was very hard to work with the person. It was very hard to communicate with him. Uh, Mike Milken, who is a great financier in the 80s of junk bonds, um, always had a view that uh, no matter who your employee is, whoever it is, uh, they do have talent. You just have to figure out, as a manager, where their best talent is. So Mike Milken is legendary. He would sit at a, a desk with an X, and he'd have four assistants around him, and he would do he he would have six or seven calls always waiting in line and he would do one trade after another uh he sometimes would do five or six minutes of multiple trades then he'd get a break and then he'd spew off all of the trades to the assistants around him and tell him all the trades that he did and hopefully they picked it all up invariably he couldn't get everything done and he had multiple girls and then there was this one woman who was, you know, came in as a favor and worked there and she was a single mom and not all that well educated, but he discovered that she had almost a photographic memory and he was able to get rid of four people with this one woman who sat there and he could go five or 10 minutes of trades, shoot it all to her and she never got any wrong. Wow. And it was unbelievable. And she you know, became uh, successful with him and he uncovered a characteristic that she had. So I think as a general lesson, um, there are people do have certain limitations, but people do have talents. And if you can't identify the talent and they have too many limitations, then it's not going to work long term. But if you can identify something that they would be very strong at, uh, it could be somebody who's not a great number cruncher, but they are a great people person. 
It could be the opposite. And you need to, you, there's only so much you can develop, but you need to find any of the talent, whether it's a baseball player or not, somebody who both has a natural talent and you figure out a way to get that talent developed. So how do you, what do you guys do when you're looking? You, you start young, right? How does it work? If you can just quickly take us through this process, because this is an amazing sort of representation of what it means to grow somebody within a company, right? Till they get on the mound or till they put the glove on and run out of that dugout in a major league baseball game. There's so much that goes into that player. I was once time on a plane. I'll never forget with a woman who was flying out to Chicago, I believe, because her fiance had just gotten called up to the Cubs. And this guy, she was telling me like was on a, no one knows this, but like, you know, on a, bus traveling around to minor league games making you know twenty five thousand dollars a year and just year after year after year after year until finally something went wrong and they needed a guy and they called him up what are you looking for what's the process if you will to build out that major league star what's that if you can sort of take us through if you will that progression of that young little kid that wants to be a player how does he go through the system like you know when do you see him and you know what does he do and what kind of work goes into becoming a major league player and when do you guys catch it um it's really a multifaceted question because you're not looking at strictly talent um Fortunately, there are plenty of guys out there today who can throw a baseball 90 miles an hour. But it's a question of makeup, of accuracy, of background. Uh, We've made mistakes. Everybody's made mistakes. Um, And there are, we have professional scouts. This is all they do for a living. The most junior scouts are probably on the road 240 days a year. Wow. They are going to the dregs of uh, uh, of of small towns. Uh, they are looking at games. They're watching baseball all the time. They're not paid a lot of money, but they love what they're doing. It's not that they're going and they see one guy and, wow, that's the next Sandy Koufax. They have to look at a guy, and you're talking about probably a 16 or 17-year-old kid who's probably a tall, scrawny kid, and they have to figure out and project in their mind what this kid is going to look like. I remember when uh, Andrew Miller, who's now been a successful major leaguer, came to us. He he looked like a string bean. And one of our top baseball guys said to me, this, let me tell you what he's going to look like in four years from now. Because they see all of these kids develop and they know how much meat they're going to put on them. They know how much muscle they're going to put on them. And he said, they'll know if they, they, at least they'll project whether they uh, think he's going to grow in the future. So you try to delve into their background. You talk to their old coaches. You try and meet their family. You try and find out what they are. You, when you're talking to the coaches, you want to know if they're coachable. Um, we had one great player when we first started in baseball in Montreal, um, and he had immense talent. The problem there was his father was involved, and his father, no matter what the coaches told him, his father would say, no, 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 that's not right. I want you to do it this way. He never made it. Wow. And there are so many other factors that come in here, 
and you're trying to get the whole picture, the right makeup, the right talent, and putting it all together. So what you're really getting at, if I can sort of break it down into two pieces, is does he have potential and can you hone the potential? Correct. Because if you have potential and he's not going to listen, it's out. And if you, you can hone it, but it ain't there. And the way you figure those two things out is you look at almost everything else but baseball. Right, you look. It's an amazing. Even you were saying this because if you would ask me what does a scout do all day, I would think that a, a scout sits in, in the stands and in his brain he's thinking, okay, the swing, the run, the pitch. He's got all, and he probably pretty much can see a thousand swings. But that's not it. You're looking at all the factors that go into the kid's life that's going to allow you to figure out: is it just that he's great because he's the biggest kid in the room, and in two years from now he'll be out, or does he have potential? And can I hone that potential into the way I see the world? Well, I think I don't want to underplay his ability to throw different types of pitches or right. whether he has a long swing or a short swing and how good his hand-eye coordination is. I mean, all of yeah. these factors are critical, but um, you could go beyond that. You could probably find 10 people with the same set of skills but only one is really going to make it, and you need to figure out which is that one, and those are the external factors. And those external factors you find are emotionally emotional related. Can you listen? Many of them. Can you, will you work hard? Because most major leaguers, unlike other sports, I find that baseball, and maybe I just don't know enough about other sports, the level up is so far. Meaning for a kid to become a major leaguer, unless you're incredibly good, you really do have to go through a lot. You have to swing the bat a million times. You have to get on buses and travel around in the minors or in some farm system. And, and do you find that how many of your players, or let's say in your career, when you're looking at the best players you've had, how many of those guys are just sluggers? They just, I don't mean like by hitting sluggers. I mean, they just sort of slug out week, week after week. You, you, they were on a bus. They played in some you know small stadium in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, signed baseball for, you know, like how many of them versus how many of them are just sort of, they came up and they're, they're, they're killers. Um, the majority of them have come up through the minor leagues and, and did all of the bus travel and went from single A to double A to triple A. But what you find is that the superstars of today and even uh, when we won the World Series in 2003, Miguel Cabrera was 18 years old. 19 years old. Wow, to think. And Dontrell Willis was 19 or 20 years old. And uh, Carlos Stanton, our new superstar, um, you know, also came up uh, when he was 20, 21. So there were a lot of players who were unbelievably talented today who fly through the minor league system. Um, and they could get to the major leagues early. Um, but it depends on where you are as a team and what you want to do with them. Right. Um, and uh, so not all of these superstars did it for the full three, four, five years. They got there quicker, but the majority of them do have to go through and pay their dues. Right. And you have to, and more importantly for those listening is that not only do you have to pay your own dues, you as the employer have to build a system that can spot and train, right? You're, you're, you're hiring scouts. You're building systems. You're, I don't know if you guys are financing. I don't know how the minor league system works, but I'm sure that they're in real cahoots with the actual teams, with the actual ball clubs, so that you're spending an enormous amount of time and effort on 80, 90% of the people that will never actually 
change your bottom line on the on on the baseball diamond in for in in for the the uh, Miami Marlins, and that's sort of the cost of business of getting great talent. Correct. We the way it works is we pay for all the talent in the minor leagues, and the vast majority of them never make it. Um, you could make a mistake, and there are cases of people who brought up young players too quickly, and that killed their careers. So you need to be careful about right. that as well. And you need to hone your talent. I think that's a great example. As you're talking, I'm thinking about different things I'm involved in and how much time do we spend honing talent? How much time do we spend scouting? How many businesses right now have people working for them, whether they are full-time employees or they're, they're going out and reaching out to part-time employees or their consumers, so to speak, are supposed to be their fans? And are they scouting? Are they thinking? Is there systems of tiers? Is there any level of thought that goes from when you get – if you have that ability, when you get on the baseball diamond in, in my stadium that I build, the office or whatever, the C-suite or whatever it is, I've really invested. And that means I've lost nine people to get to my one. And I would bet that that's how it works. There are the exceptions to the rules that just grew up the system. I would bet that you can't get the one unless you, you, unless you get rid of nine. It's impossible to find the one unless you're getting – it's not a question of choosing one. I think talent, and tell me if you disagree with me, is not choosing one outside the outliers that come up. It's, re, it's removing nine. That in every pile of ten, what you're really doing is process of elimination versus looking and going, um, the third guy. Because you just don't know. You don't, there's no way to know. Because you don't know what's going to happen in three years. You don't know what's going to happen when, when push comes to shove. You don't know what's going to happen when the business changes, when the demands are higher. There's no way for anyone to be able to say, in your case, at 15, 16, the kid's going to know how to make it when he's 24, 25. Or in a business's case, when this business expands or explodes or we take out a new client, or we, will this employee make it? Will this high school, will this new, new hire make it? Unless you're thinking, I'm willing to put in the time and effort to get rid of nine, so to speak, to find my one. It's true. You need to do that all the time. That's unbelievable. And most people don't do that. And that's why most businesses, I think, are, are struggling today is because what they don't spend time in. And I'm telling you, and I, I hear this again and again, most businesses are, are struggling today not because they don't have good ideas or because there isn't money. There's plenty of money. Most people are, are struggling is because they don't have talent. Because the time it takes to build talent is incredibly difficult. And also people don't have the time for it because they, they, you know, they have demands. Or they have the talent, but the talent is in the wrong place. That's great. Exactly. Right? The talent's in the wrong place. And you know this well because you can have a great guy that's playing right field and you, you won't put him behind. Well, maybe right field and catchers can be interchangeable, but you won't put him on the mound. Let's talk about something else. And I know I only have you for a few more minutes and I appreciate you being here. But this is an, an issue that I, I think is incredibly important for baseball in life. Baseball you know, I had this conversation once. We were talking about what's the best sport for a child to start, right? It's amazing how, especially in the Northeast, baseball is where kids start playing sports. Maybe in the South it's football, but here it's baseball. And maybe I grew up in Brooklyn, it was basketball. But here, you know, especially in, in a lot of parts, it's baseball, little leagues. And I remember once talking with a bunch of fathers sitting around. And baseball is a great sport, but for little kids it's incredibly difficult. I find it hard to sit through a little league because it's just forever. At least I know when I watch a basketball game with my kids, it's, it's going to end at some point. And we were talking once a bunch of dads and saying, why is baseball the, the, the gateway sport? And I think the answer is that baseball has the right mix of individual and collective competition. If you look at a game of baseball, it's basically a series of one-on-one interchanges. 
right? The pitcher and the batter is a one-on-one play. The batter and wherever the ball goes is a one. Everything really is a one-on-one. It's very few moments you have a double play. Those are great. There are very few moments that within the actual play itself, there is more than two people. But at the same time, there's a collective. There's a team. And so when a kid walks in, the interplay between I have to stand in front of that pitcher, I can't hide behind the best kid in basketball, run up and down the court, and we win. I have to stand in front of a pitcher, and I'm going to have my moment where either I'm going to strike out or I'm going to get out. Or I'm gonna, that, that's an un, the ball's coming to my position. I can't hide behind the best athlete. But we're also a team. So the question that I have for you, which is I like think most important in baseball, is what do you value in terms of teamwork? You mentioned a minute ago that you got a one-cent brain, or you, I'm sure you've got, you're dealing with egos all over the place. I'm sure you're dealing with some 19, 20-year-old kid that comes up and says, I'm the greatest thing since sliced white bread, and if you don't have me, we're out. So I need, and you're dealing with it from the front office, I'm sure with money, and you're also dealing with it with the manager saying, hey, guys, I can't put this guy in my ball club because every time he walks in, there's four guys ready to leave the team because he thinks he owns the place. What's your thought in terms of teamwork? Does it really matter in baseball that people like each other? Does it matter that there are, there's a unit? Is there a sense? I know in hockey and in basketball, there is a certain sort of gelling of a team as they run up and down a field. But what is it like in baseball? Because baseball to me is the closest analogy to business. Because business is like that too. Business isn't as much of a team sport people think it is. There are moments where the, the departments come together. and they, But most of it, or a lot of businesses... A lot of really short interchanges of single plays. And the question that businesses have, and the questions that I think baseball players have, is what is the value of the cohesiveness of a team? How does it play in your mind? Um, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, and I, I'm not as familiar with uh, all of teams that have won championships uh, to see what the cohesiveness was within those teams because I've only been with one team. But I will tell you that if you understood the normal workday for a player, you would understand why it is absolutely critical for them to continue to perform and to work well together as a team to have that cohesiveness. I mean, for a night game at 7 o'clock, they probably start arriving around 1 in the afternoon. They are sitting together in the clubhouse. The clubhouse is like a sacred place. Very limited access to people. They have their own dining room in there. They're working with coaches. There's video rooms. But for the most part, and we built our clubhouse in one big oval so that everybody is facing everybody else. There's no corner offices like you probably were used to in your old law firms. There is nobody who is better than the others. Everybody is an equal, and that's how our clubhouse was designed. Everybody faces each other. Everybody comes to each other for advice. But they are together like any other workforce, but not necessarily in an office where some people are in this office, some people are in a bullpen, they are actually facing and working with each other every single day. They are, during batting practice, shagging fly balls together. They're in the outfield. They're giving people tips. They're watching each other taking swings. So not only are they teammates, it is in their best interest for their teammate to do better. Uh, 
and therefore that cooperation is beyond. Forgetting about when they leave and whether they hang out together, whether they're really good friends or not, I mean, that would be a normal process. But I think that the way they perform at the highest level is by having a really, really good time together and having fun because baseball at the end of the day is fun. If you don't see that team during a walk-off home run jumping on each other and throwing water on each other like 10-year-old kids playing Little League do when they've won a game, then they've lost, they've lost a little bit of the desire to win. And that's part of it. And the only way they want to jump on each other is if they actually like each other. Right. So what you're saying here is the, the symmetry, the, the alignment of goals, what, what drives people together in baseball or in any sport, but I think you're, you're bringing something out, is that a lot of what they do is similar, right? A lot of them are just doing the same things. They're swinging the bats. They're playing in, in the field. And so because they're all aligned that they need each other, which is different in other sports because other sports can have the one or two stars that carry the team. At the end of the day, if you know, you're know number six to nine can't swing a bat, you're not winning games. I don't care what the, you know, the, the meat of the order is doing. So when you align your goals together, you're creating a natural environment for people to want to be helpful. And the helpfulness, so to speak, the togetherness engenders that we're all winning together. I think when I watch a walk-off home run in baseball and they go crazy – I think it's unique because people are excited for each other because they've helped them get that walk off home run versus my stats, your stats. At some point, un- allowing somebody else time in the spotlight in baseball is part of the game, right? In some other sports, that spotlight time is would have been my spotlight time. In here, that's your time. You're, you're the only guy getting up there. I can't get up there and go, hey, listen, you, you, you sit down for a second. I got this one for you. I'll take the shot. You're, and the ability to recognize the role in this together, and I need you to be successful. The every link is just as, is is equally strong to have the chain work. I think is an amazing lesson for business. And like you're hearing you say, that's really the, that's it. Whether they hang out afterwards is less relevant, and maybe because they are all baseball players and they live very specific lives, high exposure lives that they'll they'll find comfort in each other, especially when one makes a mistake. But what I'm hearing you say is. You guys are creating an environment where baseball is a natural environment for people to help each other because they're all in it together. And it's that helping each other that hopefully makes them win, whether or not they have any personal interest in each other. Yeah. When the number three hitter hits that walk-off hit, if the number two hitter, when he got up with two outs, didn't foul off seven pitches and get a walk, the number three hitter never would have gotten up to hit that walk-off home run. Baseball players, more so than any sport, when a guy hits a shot in basketball at the buzzer, nobody is thinking about the guy two minutes ago who hit a two-pointer that without that two-pointer, it wouldn't have mattered for the guy to hit the walk-off. But when you're in that game and that guy just fouled off seven pitches and he got that walk, everybody is talking about that made the game. Right. So that's why it's more so focused on a group effort right. than I think other sports as well. Great. Last question, and, and, and I appreciate your time here, and I know this is a question a lot of people have in their minds. Um, work day. You mentioned it a minute ago. When you look at a baseball player, you think, I think, these guys wake up, they roll out of bed, they show up to practice, they swing a couple of bats, they stretch, 
they get on the field, and they play baseball. Because that's what we do when we play sports, right? We go to work, we come home, or it's Sunday morning, or you have a league. You, get, you show up, you're there 20 minutes beforehand, maybe. You get there five seconds before. You stretch, 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 and you play. What goes into a normal workday for the guy who's already put in the five, six, eight years? So we're talking about the guy. You're, on the, you know, you're a little kid, and you play baseball, and then you get on the buses, and you work. And da, 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 da. Now you're a Marlin. Now you're a professional baseball player. Can you give us an insight to how hard these guys work? They make it look so easy, and that's exactly what people feel like, right? I think fans all want to be professional athletes because you see the walk-off home run, and then you see 30-year-olds or 28-year-olds or 25-year-olds act like 10-year-olds and getting paid for it. You're like, wait a second. They get to go and play some baseball, and they get paid? Like That's, like, that's the best life ever. But what's really going on in the life of a professional athlete? What is his if you will, day look like when he's when you're in season? I, I think looking at a professional athlete is is not that dissimilar from looking at any top business leader or manager. Um, they have to understand all of the external factors that will give them an edge, that will make them better. So for a professional athlete, it could be their diet. I mean, they are so focused, some of the guys, on what they eat and what they don't eat, what kind of proteins they need. There are guys that are, as part of their work, they they are doing stretching, lifting, uh, weight programs. They're doing all sorts of things that are very professionally designed to give them that edge, to make them a little bit better. So I, as an investment banker, thought I could do my job better every day by reading the Wall Street Journal at 7.30 in the morning. They think they can do their job better by taking a three-mile jog when they wake up or whatever it is that they do. So they're both working in the morning before they get there and when they get there. There is a sophistication to it today. Uh, Before we start any series and every major league team does it, there are team meetings. There are team meetings with the hitters. These are the pitchers on the opposite team. This is what you can expect. This is the pitches that they generally throw. This is what they'll generally do when they're ahead in the count. This is what they'll do behind in the account. They'll talk to the pitchers. This is where the guy's weakness is when you're pitching to him. The pitchers have their own meaning. The catchers have their own meaning. There is a sophistication level that these guys go into and to understand. And this is after all of the physical practice. This is after all of the drills that are going on now in spring training. Uh, what if it's first and second and there's a bunt back to the pitcher? When does he go to third? When does he go to second? When does he go to first? Where do the other players move? And it is such a complicated game for when the guy turns on his TV to watch three hours And I think it's a great lesson with any business. Um, When you see an end product, when you see the new Apple iPhone 6 come out, we can't even possibly understand the thousands and thousands of man hours and planning that went into this release and to the building and to the construction. I don't think it's any different. I just think it's a different set of things that everybody needs to do if they want to get that edge. Right. And with this, I'll conclude, and I appreciate you being here. And I think this is something that I've seen again and again and again, which is that greatness is not a hobby. People that are professional athletes, like you said, managers, they're not walking in 
very rarely do you find the guy just wake up in the morning. And there are the few, like the Bo Jackson, so to speak, of the world. But even Bo Jackson's the great story of the man who had everything and lost everything the way he got everything. Very few people that I think are out there are just naturally better than everybody else in the world. Usually you come in with something, but the ability to know how to hit that pitch on a, on a 3-1 is because someone taught you that when you're ahead, when they're ahead on the count, they're going to soften up or they're going to try to get you. The, the idea is that greatness requires an enormous amount of time and effort and building and working. And even the people that are playing at the highest stage of athletics, they're, they're not done. They're only leveraging more people that can help them become great. Um, and I think that's a lesson for everybody in life, which is, if you want to be great at something, you have a better chance at finding the things that you really could do and really kill it, kill it, kill it, kill it, than sort of bobbing around a bunch of things because professional professionals, whether they're athletes or they're leaders or they're uh, bankers or they're lawyers or they're moms or they're dads or whatever they are, requires an enormous amount of time, effort, and energy. One, one last thing that I would mention to you, um, which was so impressive to me, um, as we all know, the um, when we were opening our new stadium three years ago, we wanted to really understand customer service because in our old stadium, we didn't own the stadium, we didn't control the staff. And probably the number one company in this country, maybe even in the world, who knows how to handle uh, uh, crowds is Disney. Disney has a division that comes in and trains their employees. Wow. And we sent every one of our stadium employees, day employees, whether it was the, the cleaning company, whether it was a concession stand, whether it was the ushers, whether it was security, went through full days, three full days of, of Disney training. And one of the takeaways I had, and they had some great lessons there, is that when you, when somebody asks you a question, there are three ways you can answer it. You can give them the answer that they're looking for, assuming that you're not obnoxious to them. You can give them the answer that satisfies the question. You can satisfy the question and go a little bit further, or you could blow them away. So, for example, a guy walks up to an usher and says, Hi, I'm looking for the kosher stand here. Where is it? Well, the guy could just stand there and says, Oh, just keep going around here, and it's all the way at the end. Okay, well, that's sort of expected. The guy can't be upset. You told him the answer. He could move out of his position and walk 25 feet and point it to him and say, You see that green sign over there? That's where it is. So continue here. So now he's gone beyond. And the final level is, you know what? Let me take you over there and show you where it is. And in all of these lessons, we see that you can really, as you say, hit it out of the park, really nail it by just having a mindset that I want to be the best that I can be in whatever it is that I'm doing. And that's a great lesson that if we all take in, we will understand. Right, and be the best that we can be. And that's the goal. It's not to, it's not to really compete. And that's really the game of it all is, is it's not really the competition against. It's the competition from within. 
Joel, thank you so much for joining us. It's a true honor to have you on and, and, and really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. This is the Charlie Harari Show with Charlie Harari on the Blaze Radio Network.